Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, the book of Acts, an introduction. Well, today we're going to cross a bridge. And the name of that bridge is the book of Acts. Now, the dictionary definition of a bridge is a structure carrying a road or a path across an obstacle, such as a river or a ravine. The obstacle we are crossing over is a ravine, a gulf, really, that has historically separated the Old and the New Testaments. The needed structure that spans that gulf is the book of Acts. Now a reasonable question would be how can Acts be the bridge between the Old Testament and the New when the first book of the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew followed by three more Gospels? And the answer is that the purpose of the Gospels is to reveal the nature, the life, and the times of Yeshua, who is the Messiah. But the book of Acts delves into how the followers of a Jewish Messiah, whose messianic office is derived only from a Jewish-Israelite religion and a Jewish-Israelite holy book, somehow came to purposely include the Gentile world. A valued friend of mine who lives in Jerusalem, Messianic Rabbi uh, Joseph Shulam, says this about the New Testament in general. The New Testament is a Jewish document from the first century A.D., reflective of the lifestyle and theology of the Jewish community of the Second Temple period, produced mainly by Jews, interested in promoting a Jewish understanding of the Messianic promises made by Israel's prophets. The New Testament texts constitute an inalienable part of Second Temple Judaism. And it can only be properly understood in their original Jewish cultural and religious milieu. There is no better New Testament book to help us understand first century second temple Judaism than the book of Acts. Yet the book of Acts still is not sufficient in itself to help modern Western Christians truly understand the Jewish culture and religion of Yeshua's day. And so, I will take us on a number of detours. And we'll spend the time necessary to construct the needed context. Now, I will admit up front that if you have not studied the Torah and the Tanakh with Seed of Abraham Torah class you will be at a disadvantage. The Old Testament will play a significant background role in our study of the book of Acts. This is because, as I've stated on numerous occasions, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. Trying to study the New Testament without first knowing the Old Testament is like walking into the third act of a three-act play after missing the first two acts. 
you may well get something out of it. But you will have missed the character development and you will have missed the context for the plot. How the play got from here to there, you don't know. So, you fill in the blanks with your imagination and your suppositions. In fact, when the play ends and the curtain drops, your conclusions about that play's meaning and purpose will be at best incomplete. At worst, it might be far off the mark. The reason I've decided to teach the New Testament book of Acts is because Christianity, in many cases Messianic Judaism, has indeed arrived to the play late and missed or dismisses the first two acts as not relevant to a modern believer. The result has been some doctrinal conclusions that are substantially off the mark. Even worse, these dubious doctrines have fomented misunderstanding, if not downright hatred, between Jews and Christians, and also the alienation of Jews from their own Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So, let's get started. Now, as is our custom, we will have an introduction to the book of Acts today as our first step onto the bridge that spans the gulf between the Testaments. And the best place to start is with the author of the book. Now, while it's not universally accepted, all but the most ardent skeptics for both the liberal and the conservative sides of Christianity agree that the author is Luke, the same Luke who penned the Gospel of Luke. There are several reasons for this conclusion. The first is that both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are addressed to the same person, Theophilos. The second is that the literary style of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are very similar. And third is, it is clear by the author's own words that the book of Acts is essentially the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Let's take a look at the opening paragraphs of both Luke and Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, it begins like this. Dear Theophilus, Concerning the matters that have taken place among us, many people have undertaken to draw up accounts based on what was handed down to us by those who were from the start eyewitnesses and proclaimers of the message. Therefore, Your Excellency, since I have carefully investigated all of these things from the beginning, it seemed good to me that I should write you an accurate and ordered narrative so that you might know how well founded are the things about which you've been taught. Now, comparing that with the opening of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Dear Theophilos, in the first book I wrote about everything Yeshua set out to do and to teach until the day when, after giving instructions through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to the emissaries whom he'd chosen, he was taken up into heaven. And after his death, he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And during a period of 40 days, they saw him 
And they spoke with him about the kingdom of God. So, according to Luke, the first book, the Gospel of Luke, was written about everything Yeshua set out to do and to teach. But the second book, the book of Acts, is about what happened after Christ's death and resurrection. Now, what has been forgotten, but was clearly known by the earliest church fathers, is that these two works, or books as we call them, written by Luke, were essentially two volumes of a single original work entitled The the History of Christian Origins. The contents of the Gospel of Luke was volume 1. The contents of the book of Acts was volume 2. And because it was originally one work, not two separate books as we commonly think of it, it began to circulate among both Jewish and Gentile believers as a single work under the single title, History of Christian Origins. It was only later that it got separated into two works, with each volume given its own separate name and identity. That is, it was no longer used as one continuous book. So only after Luke's original work was divided into two was each volume given its own name. One became the Gospel of Luke, the other became the Acts of the Apostles. Now most of the New Testament books, as we call them today, were at first in the form of letters or collections of letters. Or they were lengthy monographs written for a specific purpose. The Gospels, for instance. Now these letters and monographs were seen as informative, accurate, helpful documents that circulated among the believers. Now some letters, especially Paul's, were taken as instructional. The important point I want to make is they were not at all taken as scripture or as even inspired of God, at least not on the level of inspiration as the books of the Old Testament. The first Christian Bible, the one that Christ and all of his disciples used, and that was used all throughout the first 150 years after Christ's death, was the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. Only around 200 AD would the call come from among some in the church for the need for a unique Christian Bible, which would add to the Old Testament what we today call the New Testament. Now we're going to talk more about that shortly. The next usual question about the book of Acts is, when was it created? And as you can imagine, there isn't very much agreement about this. Um, With the earliest suggested date being around 65 A.D. and the latest around 115 A.D., maybe even a bit later. Generally speaking, that late date of 115 A.D. is accepted by very few, mostly by those who don't hold much stock in the reliability of the book of Acts. 
the majority of Bible scholars and Bible historians settle closer to sometime just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD as an early date, 90 AD as the latest possible date. My opinion is that Luke completed his work sometime before 70 AD. For one reason, all of the events and people depicted in the book of Acts, such as the reigns of various governors and uh, 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 procreators and and, 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 uh, Caesars and kings, these things all happened not later than 68 AD. This is verified by extra-biblical Roman and Jewish documents. And by the way, I use the term a lot, so let me explain it. The term extra-biblical simply means the source is not the Bible. It's something else. And even though in the book of Acts, some of the central activity takes place in Jerusalem, there is no mention of its destruction by the Romans. Since that destruction in 70 AD was so monumental and catastrophic for the Jewish people and their way of life, it's unimaginable that Luke would just simply skip right over it since it was such a game changer. The only way to reconcile a much later date with that self-evident reality is that some say Luke wrote the book 30 years or more after the destruction of Jerusalem so its impact had softened by then and it wasn't worth mentioning. That is a major stretch that seems highly unlikely. Then there's the issue of what Bible scholars call the we sections of Acts found in chapters 16, 20, 21, 27, and 28. Rather than explanation, let me give you an example of what I mean by the we chapters. In Acts 16, verses 10 through 17, you read this. As soon as he had seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia, for we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Sailing from Troas, we made a straight run to Samothrace. The next day we went to Neapolis, and from there we went on to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that part of Macedonia. We spent a few days in that city. Then on Shabbat, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we understood that a minyan met. Now we sat down and began speaking to the women who gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in fine purple cloth. She was already a God-fearer. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to what Shaul, Paul, was saying. And after she and the members of her household had been immersed, she gave us this invitation. If you consider me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she insisted until we went. Once when we were going to the place where the minyan gathered, we were met by a slave girl who had in her a snake spirit that enabled her to predict the future. She earned a lot of money for her owners by selling fortunes. This girl followed Shaul, Paul, and the rest of us, and she kept screaming, These men are servants of God. They're telling you how to be saved. So, notice 
how this narrative in this section speaks about we and us. Well, we know that one half of the we is Paul because it says so. But who's the other half of the we? The us. The plain reading of it, along with the context, makes it clear. The other party of we is the writer, Luke himself. In fact, in some of Paul's letters, he refers to a man named Luke who accompanied him at times, and it's difficult to find cause not to conclude that this is the same Luke who's the writer of Acts. Here is but one example of finding Luke in Paul's epistles. In Colossians 4, 12-14 we read this. Epaphras sends greetings. He is one of you, a slave of the Messiah Yeshua who always agonizes in his prayer on your behalf, praying that you may stand firm, mature, and fully confident as you devote yourselves completely to God's will. For I can testify to him that he works hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. For our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas also send you greetings. Luke is also mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in Philemon 24. The point is that while most of Acts is Luke writing about things he had been told about, he had found out in his investigations, and he'd taken interviews from eyewitnesses and information extracted from other documents that he deemed as reliable, some of what he wrote about was first-hand knowledge. He actually personally knew Paul. And he participated with Paul in some of his missionary trips. Now, why is that fact so important? It's because we first learn of Paul in the book of Acts not in his epistles. And it is in Acts that we see the new believer, Paul, in his Jewish context. We learn how it is that he came to be a follower and an apostle of Christ. Let me say it another way. Acts gives us the foundational background for understanding who Paul is. Without Acts, we don't quite see Paul as the committed Jew that he is. It is Luke who knows Paul intimately. So Luke can speak knowledgeably about Paul's devotion to his Jewishness and to Torah observance that never waned as a result of his newly found belief that Yeshua was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. Now I want to explore this fact about Paul, as depicted in the book of Acts, because frankly, it has much to do with me coming to understand the Hebrew roots of my Christian faith many years ago. Without doubt, the Apostle Paul can be an enigma, if not downright frustrating. In fact, his fellow Apostle Peter found Paul very difficult to understand sometimes. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, we read this. 
And think of our Lord's patience as deliverance, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you following the wisdom God gave him. Indeed, he speaks about all these things in all of his letters. They contain some things that are very hard to understand, things which the uninstructed and unstable distort to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, I readily stipulate that Paul says many things in his epistles that in one letter seems to say one thing and another letter seems to say nearly the opposite. And since Paul was an excellent speaker, well-educated, quite articulate by all accounts, Peter can only be referring to the same issue that many laymen and pastors and Bible scholars and Bible teachers encounter with Paul. He does seem to be contradictory on some subjects. Nevertheless, it is unequivocally so that the modern church's doctrinal differences hinge on the teachings of Paul. In fact, for at least a couple of centuries now, Many intellectually honest Bible scholars freely admit that we have become far more the church of Paul than we are the church of Christ. That is, it is the doctrines extracted from Paul's teachings that form the bulk of church doctrine. And the fact that Paul can be, as Peter said, hard to understand is perhaps the primary reason that the body of Christ is broken into about 3,000 denominations. Because the tendency is to pick and choose one here, one from there. Which statements of Paul suits that denominational authority the best? But another of the main culprits for this fracturing of Christianity also has to do with an institutional unwillingness to take the book of Acts at its word as it concerns Paul. Yet another is the reluctance to research what the early church fathers had to say as concerns Paul and the book of Acts. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. Now, So let's continue with this line of thought a little further because it highlights the reason that the book of Acts is so critical to our faith. Thus, it's why we're going to take close to a year to study it. So the issue of how to interpret Paul and where to place him in the hierarchy of scriptural authority goes all the way back to around 48 AD with Peter who was one of Yeshua's twelve original disciples, who heard Messiah's teachings directly from the Lord's own lips, teachings on the very subjects that Paul would later expound upon. Now one can only imagine how hard it must have been to hear Paul say words that Peter at times couldn't exactly square with what he felt he heard Yeshua say. About a hundred years later, though, the issue of Paul's difficult sayings became even more problematic when a fellow by the name of Marcion 
decided it was time to have a Christian Bible containing teachings only from Christ believers. He also decided that the only reliable apostle was Paul. Now, Marcion of Sinope was a devotee to Paul's writings. Nevertheless, this Gentile shipping magnate had a very unbalanced view of Christianity and Paul. In 144 AD, in Rome, one of the several growing centers of Christianity, he proposed to the Bishop of Rome a new Bible. A Bible based upon his belief that the world had entered a new age because of Christ. Marcion felt that Jesus was the founder of an entirely new religion that had no connection to anything previous to it. For him, Yeshua was only Jewish due to an accident of birth. And that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and its prophecies about a Messiah had no bearing on who Jesus was. Thus, as is the true case in many Christian denominations today, for Marcion, the Old Testament had no place in a Christian Bible or in the Christian faith. And by the way, let me be clear by what I just said. I've been a member of the body of Christ for a very long time. I've carefully studied several of the modern Christian commentators, liberal and conservative. And I've served in enough churches at various levels to know that while the Old Testament may remain in a particular denomination's authorized Bible, it is considered somewhere between unimportant and irrelevant. And let me assure you, it would be removed in a heartbeat if congregation members would stand for it. But it is too sensitive of an issue to tackle quite that boldly, so it's not touched. Rather, the Old Testament is just ignored. Or, in some cases, congregations are warned that it's dangerous and you must stay out of it. As studying it just might lead you to question or abandon your faith in Christ. Now, Marcion, who indeed saw Christ as God, also saw Him as the new God while God the Father was the old God. And since God the Father had never appeared on earth before and directly ministered to people, then Christ, in his view, was the superior God. Thus we have God the Father as the God of Israel, and we have the superior Jesus Christ as the God of Christianity, thus making Christianity superior to the religion of the Israelites. And according to Marcion, it was Paul who faithfully taught this supposed truth. It was Paul alone of all the apostolic writers who kept the true witness of Christ. Thus, the rest were just too Jewish. Therefore, they were heretics. Thus, Marcion proposed a new Bible consisting of two parts. The first part would be called the gospel. The second part would be called the apostle. 
the gospel was to be only Luke's gospel. One that had been suitably edited by Marcion. The apostle would consist of nine letters, nine epistles written by Paul. They too had been edited. And that's it. Marcion published his new Christian Bible, his new Christian Bible canon, and it of course immediately caused a tremendous uproar. One has to ask a question at this point. If only one of the four Gospels in circulation that Marcion found suitable was Luke's, why did he find Luke's book of Acts unfit for his new Christian Bible? First, we have to recall something I told you a few minutes ago. Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts were originally one unified work produced by Luke. But it did consist of two volumes. At first, it circulated as a book called History of Christian Origins. Some years later, it was divided. And it was made into two separate books. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. By now, the Gospel of Luke had gained wide acceptance. But the book of Acts was not viewed with the same favor in some corners of Christianity. Certainly not in Marcion's eyes. And those corners that had disdain for the book of Acts were generally those who wanted Christianity to be a Gentiles-only religion. Now because Marcion's view was seen as so radical, the Bishop of Rome and other church bishops took up the challenge and officially looked at the issue of just how authoritative certain of the circulating epistles and gospels were to be considered. They were not deciding on a new biblical canon. Rather, they were responding to Marcion's outrageous views. The result was they gave equal weight to four particular gospels chosen among the several more that were in circulation around the church at that time. Even some Gnostic gospels were part of that mix. And the chosen four were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They also declared that ten letters, not nine, were written by Paul and were authoritative. Not inspired scripture, just authoritative for instructing the church. And and also they uh, accepted some of Peter's writings. And to Marcion's great disdain, the book of Acts was included as authoritative. In fact, the church renamed this work of Luke to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Apostles, plural. So that it was understood that the church writers considered, the church bishops considered more writers than only Paul as both authoritative and as apostles. Now, due to the book of Acts being revalidated, Yeshua's Jewishness was returned to him. Paul was given back the context of his own Hebrew heritage and his continued dedication to the Jewish religion. Now let's talk about the early church fathers for a moment. Because their view of Paul is a little bit different than the modern church view of Paul. A modern view that's, frankly, a lot closer to Marcion's. 
Now, while many modern Bible scholars and language experts and Bible historians honestly believe that they have a better idea of who the various New Testament Bible characters were and how they lived and what they meant by what they said 2,000 years ago, they must necessarily also question and at times shun some of the writings of the early church fathers, some of who were but a generation or two removed from Paul, and in some cases they knew people who knew Paul personally. I believe those scholars' premise is upside down. I mean, rather, I contend that those peoples, those people who are closest in time to any particular historical event, especially those people who, who lived within the social and cultural context of that same cultural event, have the better perspective on how to interpret and understand the meaning and intent of that event. So I'm quite at odds with most postmodern Bible scholars on that account. But it also explains why modern historians feel so confident in their opinions as to easily and often rewrite history to conform to their viewpoint. So what did the early church fathers have to say about Paul and about the book of Acts? Well, Fragments of various works of about 40 different authors who commented on the book of Acts from around 100 A.D. to perhaps as late as 800 A.D. have been found. However, there are only three ancient works that are complete commentaries, or very nearly complete, on the book of Acts that have survived over the centuries. The oldest is by John Chrysostom. It was written around 407 A.D. The next oldest was written by Arator in 550 AD, and after that, the one written by Venerable Bede in 735 AD. Any commentaries written after about that time are considered too late is to be categorized as ancient Christian commentary. Now, one fragment that was found written by the early church father Tertullian is especially insightful because in it, He's responding to Marcion's heresy, which 50 years later in 200 A.D. was still unsettling many bishops. And I think the reason for this is the bishops were at that time, around 200 A.D., beginning to seriously address the possibility of creating a New Testament and so what documents might it contain. In Tertullian's work, appropriately titled Against Marcion he says this and I quote him you must show us first of all who Paul was what was he before he became an apostle how did he become an apostle in other words since Luke's Acts of the Apostles was where this information about Paul was contained Tertullian was an advocate for this book's validity and its importance for understanding Paul. Now remember that a key issue with Marcion concerned Paul and Marcion's characterization of him. Who Paul is, what Paul believes and teaches in his religious Jewish context is found primarily in the book of Acts. Remove the book of Acts from the scene 
as Marcion insisted upon. And the Paul of the epistles becomes a different Paul who will necessarily be understood differently. This is the magnitude of what we're dealing with when we decide to undertake a study of the book of Acts. Every Bible character, every human for that matter, all of us, has a foundational context for knowing them, for knowing us, for understanding them, understanding us. When it comes to the Bible, for interpreting them. When we lift anybody out of their foundational context and place them over here, oh, we get it wrong. This issue of using the book of Acts to provide the foundational context for understanding Paul compares favorably with what I've taught you about the importance of establishing the foundational context for understanding the person and purpose of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. When we discard this well-known, pivotal statement by Jesus explaining His identity and His purpose in His own words, then we lose the foundational context for understanding who Yeshua is. In Matthew 5, 17-19, Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments, and they teach others to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When we read this, we hear our Messiah insist he did not do the very thing that the Gentile Christian church insists he did. Abolish the law and the prophets. And of course, as most of you are well aware, there is an equal insistence within Christianity that it is Paul who says Christ did abolish the Torah and the prophets. Truth be told, the position that Christ did abolish the law and the prophets is precisely what led Marcion to his heresy. And it's interesting that the early church bishops and church fathers renounced Marcion for this because they knew better. It's also true that if you read sections of some of Paul's epistles, it's hard not to take it that way. But just as there is a pivotal foundational context for understanding Christ as found in Matthew chapter 5, so there is a pivotal foundational context for understanding Paul that we will dissect in depth in the book of Acts. Now we spent a great deal of time talking about Paul. So now I'd like to change gears and discuss this central issue. What is the book of Acts about? Who is its central character? The answer to this isn't easy because Acts covers a lot of territory. 
We meet a number of people in Acts, such as Barnabas and Peter and James and Stephen, and of course Paul. However, I think I can say with confidence that you will soon see that the central character in the book of Acts is God. And especially in His attribute as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes central stage in Luke's sequel. In fact, when we count up the number of times in the entire New Testament that the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name, we find this interesting spread. Matthew, five times. Mark, four times. Luke, 13. John, 3. All of Paul's epistles, in total, 16. Hebrews 5, Peter 2. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned in Revelation, but in the book of Acts, we find the Holy Spirit mentioned 40 times. When we add together both books written by Luke, that means that out of a total of 88 times that the Holy Spirit is spoken of in the entire New Testament, Luke speaks of him 53 of those times. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was at the forefront of Luke's mind as he contemplated the work of God, especially after Christ ascended. Now we're also going to find that Luke equates the terms Holy Spirit and Spirit of Yeshua as being the same. And we'll cover that more when we encounter it in Acts chapter 16. Now further, our writer Luke makes it abundantly clear that for him, the God of the church is the God of Israel. Quite the opposite viewpoint that Marcion took. And that everything that Christ did and who he is is confirmed and fulfilled. And it was written by the Old Testament prophets. As we progress through the book of Acts, you will notice that Israel's history is made central to redemption history in speeches by the martyr Stephen and then by Paul. Therefore, in summation, I think I can say that while each of the epistles of the New Testament was written to address some specific issues taking place at specific congregations of believers, the book of Acts was written to accomplish the dual tasks of defining and reconciling the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers in the first century body of believers and also to put Peter's and, and Paul's ministries in their proper perspectives and to put them on somewhat equal footing. As Rabbi Joseph Shulam so aptly points out, as we read in the book of Acts, about Peter and Paul, Luke advises us that first, the first healing of both men were of cripples. Second, that Peter healed by merely casting his shadow. 
while Paul healed from someone touching a cloth that he had touched. Third, they both encountered and dealt with witchcraft. Fourth, they were both supernaturally released from being imprisoned. And fifth, through all of their trials and troubles, still they were able to spread the word of God and the truth of the good news. So I want to finish up today with this thought. One of the themes that is woven throughout the book of Acts is that what happens on earth is being established, is either being established on another level in heaven or it has already been established in heaven and now it's only happening on earth. And that many earthly events have a real tangible meaning, a consequence, an outcome as they happen, such as the death of Christ. But these same events can also simultaneously have a a mysterious quality to them that somehow advances God's plan and purpose in ways that we can't see or even measure. Gregory the Great, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church from 590 to 604 AD said this, Holy Scripture, in its way of speaking, transcends all other sciences because in one and the same statement, while it narrates a real event, it also sets forth the mystery. Now I've tried to characterize and illustrate this impossible to explain divine phenomena by using the term reality of duality. Next week, we shall open our Bibles to the first chapter of Acts.